if uh, you have also been faithful or uh, been here since the beginning of the year, you'll notice on our bulletin we've been keeping a plan for reading the Bible. If you're a visitor, you can check that out. If today's your first day, you look at that. We've been reading through the Bible together as a church. We're going to continue to do that through the month of uh, December. Every week, we're reading uh, several portions of Scripture. And on Sunday, we're going to look back, make the message uh, for this Sunday, look back on what we've read. So I know that a great number of you who have been faithful to this plan have already been prepared because you've been reading. And thank you again for all of your encouragement. It continues to come in. The power of God's word is evident and it's working here uh, in our church. This has been unifying and let's keep it going. I know it was difficult, and it may continue to be a little difficult reading through this book of Leviticus. One comment I heard was enough, enough of all this sacrifice. Oh, my goodness. Well, yes, enough, right? Praise God that we don't have to do that. We live under the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Maybe that's a great reminder, and we should go back to Leviticus now and again and read, especially those first seven chapters about all the sacrifice. And we continued uh, to read through a good portion of that, I believe up to chapter 23 this week. We finished the New Testament letter to the Colossians. We began the first letter to the Thessalonians and finished the first four chapters. And we're continuing to read through some of the Psalms. And since the beginning of this month, we've picked up a thread from the Psalms that we've been reading. And that thread is a declaration that's made by the psalmists about the Lord. And they clearly and explicitly declare the Lord is. So we have looked at the Lord is our God. And that is purely foundational. It has to be, we must uh, we must make that our st- starting point. If the Lord isn't God, then the rest, it doesn't really make sense. So that was our starting point. We move to the Lord is our help and he can be trusted. And then last week, the Lord is my light and my salvation. That was very personal, very personal and possessive. It went from this, uh, com- this uh, congregational, if you will, or a plural possessive of our to this personal. And this week, we continue with that thread of the Lord is a declaration, and it's from Psalm 111, because Psalm 111 also makes this this great declaration of the Lord is. So we're going to read the entire Psalm. It's only 10 verses Just to remind us of what it said, those of you who read it should be fresh in your mind. This is a little refresher. If you didn't get a chance to do that, we're going to catch you up right now. Psalm 111 begins this way. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's a declaration right from the beginning. Then it goes on. I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the counsel of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of of the Lord, they are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works, giving them the lands of other nations. 
The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever and acted in faithfulness and uprightness. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. That's the whole psalm. This psalm is an unattributed psalm. We don't know who the author is. Don't know why it was written, what circumstances might have inspired it. But it doesn't make it any less beautiful than it is. It's a very beautiful psalm. And we lose some of that in the English. We lose some of the beauty of this psalm and how it was rendered to the first readers as it's translated from a Hebrew to English, because this psalm was written as an alphabetic acrostic. There's 10 verses, and although there's 22 consonants in the Hebrew alphabet, there's 22 phrases here in Psalm 111. After praise the Lord, after that opening hallelujah, that's what it is, it's hallelujah, and it's translated praise the Lord. After that opening praise the Lord, there's 22 lines or 22 phrases and each of them begin with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So if you were Hebrew and you read it, you would see how it was arranged and you would see how beautiful it was beginning with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, that begins, I will extol the Lord. It continued on in this beautiful presentation. The psalm was a work of art in which we don't see. But I want you to appreciate that. I want you to appreciate the beauty that went into uh, this psalm. And by the way, Psalm 112, which immediately follows, same format. The psalmist presents himself here from the outset as an individual. He, He begins after praise the Lord with the word I. I will extol the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart. But he's not doing it alone. He doesn't present himself as standing alone in the wilderness. He's not standing uh, in his house or in his prayer closet. He says, no, I will extol the Lord in the counsel of the upright and in the assembly. So in other words, he's with a group of others. The first two Psalms that we presented earlier this month, as I mentioned, we Uh, we saw them presenting a declaration about the Lord using this word, our, a plural possessive. Last week, the singular, my. In this this instance, it is first person singular, I, I. It's an individual act of worship, but it's within the context of a public worship service. Just like we're here today. I, I will extol the Lord right here with all the other faithful people. And he makes reference then to the works of the Lord, to how great they are, how majestic the deeds uh, are of God. And not for an individual. He's not saying, oh Lord, thank you for your, your great and your wonderful majestic deeds for me. That's not the way it reads. He's standing there in the midst of the assemblies saying, 
thank you, God, or these are your great and majestic works, telling and reminding of the great works of God for the people, for the people, for the assembly. He uses the word assembly, and then he references the people two more times. And then he mentions that the people are going to get nations. And who are uh, the benefactors of all these great works? It is those who fear him, he says. Yeah, he's standing there in the assembly. He's standing there in the congregation, but he makes a point to remind, who is it? Who is it that's going to receive the benefits of the majestic works of Almighty God? He says, those who fear the Lord. Of course, he closes the psalm with the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. It's a reminder, a reminder of fear. And, and, and fear is, is not a shaking uh, a tr- terror. It's honor. It's re- reverence. It's respect. It's those who faithfully are following him. And for those, then, this declaration is made, the declaration of the Lord is gracious and compassionate. It is a repeat of what we heard at the open of this service from Psalm 145, the same exact line. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. These are attributes of Almighty God, and I want to focus and zero in on this idea of compassionate this morning. What does compassionate mean? A dictionary definition of the word compassionate, it means a sympathetic consciousness of another's distress. But it doesn't end there. It's not just an understanding or a realization of someone else's hurt or distress, but it's coupled together with a desire to alleviate that or mitigate that. Compassion's a a compound word. It's got this prefix, com, at the beginning. And com means something, that C-O-M at the beginning. It means with. It means together, in association. With what? Well, it's compassion. With passion. Connected to passion. And what does that mean? Is that uh, in a hypercharged emotion? Is that what it means? Compassion? It, it is with uh, some, some overcharged hyper emotion? No. The, the word passion here is in a sense that has really become obsolete for the word passion. And it means suffering. Coupled with suffering. We're coming into the Easter season, and no doubt we're going to hear this phrase, the passion of Jesus. And that doesn't mean that Jesus was uh, having some, you know, overcharged preaching, and people said, oh, he was passionate about his preaching. Well, I'm sure he was passionate about his preaching. But this is the different sense of the word when people say the passion of Jesus. And you know, there was that movie, The Passion of the Christ. What did it mean? It meant his suffering. His suffering. So compassion is a connection with suffering, meaning an understanding of another's pain and a desire to somehow mitigate that pain or distress. So it's see 
and do. It's not just see. See and do. And I'm sure we could all recall someone who's shown compassion, where you observed that someone not only saw, but they did. Jesus gave us the greatest example, the, the most famous, which is that of the parable of the Good Samaritan, a beaten man, ignored on the side of the road. Priest walks by him. Levite walks by him. They don't help him. Who showed compassion? It was the Samaritan. He observed the beaten man. And then he extended his hand to pick him up and take care of him. Pour in the oil and the wine. Take him to the inn. Pay his bills. That was the the great example presented uh, by Jesus. And I'm sure you all have a story that you could uh, relate. I remember in high school, uh, in my ninth grade uh, civics class, and I'm coming from parochial school. So public high school was a big change in my life. And I was... I was getting accustomed to a whole different way of uh, going to school and dealing with things. This was way different than uh, eight years of parochial school. I remember in ninth grade civics class, alphabetical seating. My last name's V. I'm up against the windows. I'm all, second last seat from the back. I think there was one kid behind me. His last name was W. So there I was, last row, almost last seat. Well, there was a kid in the class, a kid that was mercilessly picked on. And he was more up front, sort of diagonally, way his, he was more at the beginning of the alphabet. And for, you know, whatever reason, kids just, uh, they picked on him. They poked him. They called him names. And they would do it behind the teacher's back, always to get that kid in trouble. And the teacher, I remember the teacher one day grabbing that kid, this kid who's getting picked on, and, and dragging his desk to the front of the classroom and sticking it up against the wall and, you know, really uh, reading him the riot act and telling him, you know, he's out of line when, you know, he was just acting out because kids were poking him and picking at him. And uh, it's, it's, you know, that's hard to, it's hard to see, uh, but yet you're in class and, uh, again, I'm, I'm diagonally opposite this kid and one day as he's uh, leaving, someone, you know, bumps him, knocks his books out of his hand. We didn't have backbags, too. The backbag phenomenon didn't happen. I don't, when did that happen? Uh, but it was, we didn't have backbags. You know, we carried all our books under our arms, the notebooks, and they fell all over the place sometimes. So this kid, you know, somebody knocks his books down, and he's picking them up. Another kid comes over to help him. Most of them are walking by. A kid comes over to help him. You know, reach down, grab a book, pull him up. And he showed compassion for this kid who'd been picked on so much. And I, I remember seeing it because, you know, again, I'm coming out of class way behind. And I, that kid who was bullied and picked on, he didn't really know what to do. I was like, well, somebody's showing me this. He was kind of stunned. He was totally stunned. And he just kind of walked away didn't even understand this, really. Somebody had observed and acted. Somebody had witnessed 
and responded to someone who didn't expect it. They didn't expect this act of compassion. And is not that the heart of our Lord? The Lord is conscious of our distress. He desires to alleviate it, and he acts. Even when we think it'll never happen, even when we are just completely, completely believing the worst, it's always going to be the problem. I'll always be in this pain. God sees. God sees. We've, we've mentioned how God saw Sarah's servant Hagar, and she learned about faith in God through her difficult circumstances. And she was the one who said, God sees. She said, Elroy, God sees. And, and God is the God who sees everything. He sees uh, the bad and he sees the good. In Genesis chapter six, it's the uh, narrative of Noah. The Lord saw the wickedness of the human race and how wicked they had become on earth. And at every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord saw the bad and the Lord saw the good. From the earliest pages of the Bible, it's recorded not only that uh, God was the creator, but he was active in his creation. The Lord knows when we are in need, when we are in distress. Exodus, again, we've recently been through it. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Exodus chapter two, Exodus three, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. He saw it. And he says, I heard them crying because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. He sees it, and he's taking it in. And in that, in that passage in Exodus chapter three where it says, I am concerned. I heard, and I am concerned. That there is the definition of compassion. That's the connection. This sympathetic consciousness coupled with uh, the idea of mitigating the problem. The Lord is compassionate. If you don't believe that today, hear it. The Lord is compassionate. He sees the distress of his people and he has his desire to alleviate it and he acts. And some say, no, no, God doesn't. He doesn't act. He's just standing there watching. He's he's. He's an observer, but he's really not interacting with his creation. He stands back. He's an impassive observer. He's a spectator. He's a bystander. And that is the view of God from some, and it's called deism, to, to make it the uh, theological name. But it pictures God as the intelligent designer, you know, the all-powerful creator of the universe, who did create, yeah, they certain belief that, yeah, God created, but then he stood back and just let creation function. 
He designed it to function, right? He put into place all the laws of physics and the earth is spinning and nature and all. So just let it take its course. He's not interfering. He's not interacting with creation at all. To God or to a deist, God is like the watchmaker who creates the watch and he puts in all the intricacies and all the gears and the springs and he winds it up and he lets it spin and he just stands back. But you know what? That's not the testimony of Scripture. Though some might have it in their mind that, oh, God, is, he just doesn't see me. He doesn't. I know he doesn't. He's not aware of my issue, trouble, trial, or circumstance. He doesn't know what's going on in my life. He has created this thing, and he's just stepped back, and he lets it spin. That's not the testimony of Scripture. God is not a disconnected bystander. He is involved with his creation. His consciousness is coupled with a desire to alleviate suffering. We've read about it, about the rescue from Egypt, the establishment of God's law. This is all of the, the books and chapters or the chapters of Leviticus that we've been reading, his standards for his people. Now, what is this but Deep involvement. This involvement with their life. Interaction. Concern for his people. He wasn't going to govern them without, uh, without any insight into who he was or how he operated or what it meant to be holy. No. He made his expectations explicitly known. Because you sin, here is what you can do to be alleviated from the consequence. There's the book of Leviticus. There's the, you know, the first seven chapters, which we don't want to read anymore because they, oh, they affect us, right? All these details of this sacrifice and that one and blood here and sprinkle it there and drain it there. And, it, you know, oh, wow. But God's letting us know what do we got to do about this thing called sin? There's, the, there's the, then the details of the law that follow. We, that we, we read chapters 8 to 23, Within all those chapters, it's referred to as uh, the holiness code. You read the word holy at least 35 times in those chapters. And there is this refrain over and over. It's most holy. It is most holy. And I, the Lord, am holy. God is letting his people know he is putting himself right there into their life. He's laying out their, his expectations of what it means to be holy. And what's the point? The point is that God is deeply involved with his creation. He is not standing back as some, uh, you know, wound the watch and let it go. He's involved. He's involved and so involved that he offers this whole code in Leviticus and how you can be in right standing with him. He wasn't waiting to condemn. He wasn't waiting with the bolt of lightning in his hand. Somebody's going to get out of line and ah, no, no, he's letting them know. Here's what you need to do. He, he wasn't going to do this without letting people know what was expected. He laid it out in detail. There's a problem. It's called sin. Here is what you need to do to deal with it. Sacrifice. Be holy. This, this proves God's awareness, his consciousness of an issue that was very serious and he was very involved in it to the point of detailing detail after detail on how to deal with the problem. And beyond this, beyond this, he's still watching. Psalm 111 
says he provides food for those who fear him. Well, yes, he gave manna and he gave quail to these wandering Hebrew people. He gave them water from the rock. He gave them lands from other nations. Again, that's Psalm 111. When the former slaves passed over to Jordan into the uh, promised land, there was the city of Jericho. Jericho fell at the shouts and the trumpets of the people. God went before the people, granting them land, giving them land. This, was an, this is an active God. This is not some bystander. His hand is active. His great, glorious, and majestic works are remembered by the psalmist. In verse 9, he writes, He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Wow, a forever covenant, a forever promise that provides redemption. Now this here is a a, a prophetic look at ultimate, ultimate compassion. God seeing the suffering. God seeing the distress caused by sin. The world's a mess because of sin. People kill each other. People hate each other. People at each other all the time because of sin. God had a plan to redeem people, and it began at the beginning. Adam and Eve sinned. Their disobedience ushered in sin in the world. God saw it, and God saw them, Adam and Eve, naked and ashamed, trying to hide from God. God saw them, and what did he do? He clothed them. He provided clothes. That's an act of compassion. Then he began to reveal his plan to redeem humankind. Redeem. That is to clear a debt. Debt caused by this disobedience. A debt caused by this sin. Make a way for reconciliation with God. The plan for a redeemer to be born of a woman was birthed back there. It it was given to them. He's going to crush the head of the enemy. The redeemer that's going to come through the woman. This plan was an act of compassion. God saw God was acting. It was to provide a way out from under the curse of sin once for all. God's plan, it was gradually revealed. Yes, it was put out by way of covenant, promises to people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to these people that he chose to lead his people. God heard then. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant. Again, this is it. Act of compassion. God is aware of the suffering. He hears the groaning of his people. He didn't forget his covenant. No, he freed his people from slavery. And then what happened? The people rejected God. That's sort of like this kid that this kid that was helped with this great act of compassion. Didn't know what to do. Didn't know how to act. Wasn't even expecting it. Didn't even say thanks. Now, that's the reoccurring saga of the Old Testament. God sees, God acts, and then what happens? His compassion there that is is evident is rejected, and God is rejected. Now, until his plan came to a, a final fruition, he sent his son. He sent his son as 
the greatest act of compassion, the final sacrifice. The sacrifices uh, detailed throughout the book of Leviticus, yeah, keep them, in, keep them in mind. It's good to go back and read all about that. And then get it, get this, let it sink in. They're obsolete. They're not necessary anymore. And they've been rendered unnecessary at the pinnacle of God's compassion, which is called the new covenant, the the new and everlasting covenant, which is the forever everlasting covenant. In the new covenant, Jesus provided redemption for all who come and put their faith in his sacrifice. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 111, verse 9. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. That's Jesus. That is what Jesus did. In the New Testament, we've read through uh, the book of Ephesians. I remind you that it says it this way. Paul writes about it more than one time, but in the book of Ephesians, he explains it like this. In verses 8 through 12, he says, Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, Paul is uh, being humble, and he says, This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, the mystery of the everlasting covenant, which for ages was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose. There's the the plan. The plan was laid from the foundation of the world according to God's eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord, where at the cross, at the cross where Jesus gave his life. And verse 12, in him and through faith in him, that's Jesus, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. There's redemption. There's the fix. There's the, there is the bridge. There is the reconnection with God because of this great compassion of Jesus Christ. Through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence, not, not cowering in, in, in fright. Freedom and confidence, this is the ultimate, ultimate compassion of God given in Jesus. And Jesus, we're redeemed from this sin. And you can come to God. Jesus accomplished ultimate, ultimate compassion through his ultimate suffering. He felt suffering. He can be compassionate because he understands suffering. Jesus knew what he was going to face. He knew what was up against him. He knew this cross was coming. He sweat drops of blood praying about it. And then he was beaten and he was flogged and he was mocked, crowned with thorns, beaten on the head, stripped and humiliated, nailed to a cross, hung to die as that final sacrifice. Again, Picture all that sacrifice in Leviticus. There it is, done. There it is, done, gone forever because of Jesus. It was his ultimate act of compassion. I like the way Charles Spurgeon puts it, the 19th century preacher. He said, do you ask what it means, the crucifixion of a perfect man upon a felon's cross? 
you may reply, he was moved with compassion. He was, he was moved with compassion. He, understanding the suffering of people due to sin, they are destined for hell. You're destined for hell and he's gonna fix that problem. And it didn't end there at the cross. It didn't end with his crucifixion. Jesus rose from the dead and he proved his power over sin and his power over death, hell, and the grave. And then he did something even more wonderful. He sent his Holy Spirit another great act of compassion. Why? Because he said, I'm sending the Holy Spirit to help you and be with you forever. John 14, 16. He's still observing. God is still observing. He is still involved. The Lord is compassionate. His Holy Spirit is here. Do you believe that? His Holy Spirit is here. His presence dwells in his church. He moves over this congregation. He touches the heart of people. He draws the unbeliever. He pulls on hearts. And he draws people to believe in Jesus Christ. This is great compassion to save people from hell, from the pit. Have you received it today? I hope so. I hope so. I hope you've received it today. His great act of compassion at the cross is, if you haven't, I'd say to you, don't leave this morning. Do not leave until you receive that great act of compassion that Jesus accomplished for you. For you. He went to the cross to save you from your sin so, he, so, so that no other sacrifice need be made by faith in him. You can have the confidence and a freedom to approach God, your creator. He understands. He understands the depth of that, uh, of that issue of sin. But he also knows what it means to be physically broken. He also understands uh, our world that we live in. And I know you've already been up here at the, the front today, but if you're broken, if you have an issue, if you have a trial, a tribulation, if you're dealing with something, whatever it might be, if there's something heavy on your heart, you're a Christian, you believe in Jesus Christ, you believe he died for you, you've, you've made that uh, already clear in your life. But we deal with things. We deal with things, we deal with troubles, we deal with uh, decisions that we have to make. Decisions for loved ones, decisions for ourselves. Where's God? God, where are you? Where are you? Are you watching? Do you understand? Do you see me? I want to tell you, he sees you. He sees you. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. Not only does he see you, he can act on your he can act on your behalf. He can intervene in your situation. And if you humble yourself a little and say, God, I need it. Maybe God, I've been saying, do you see me? And that's been more of me trying to tell you what to do. Maybe I should humble myself before you say, God, I know you see me and I need your help. What do you, what do you have to do? I'm not going to tell you what to do. 
And if you come with that attitude, I believe God will intervene in your situation. I believe Jesus Christ, the Lord, who is compassionate, will do something for your situation. I believe his Holy Spirit will move on you. And I invite you to do that this morning if you need to. You just come on down and you say, God, I need you. God, I need you. I'm broken. I have an issue. I have a trouble. Help me. Help me. And if you want that help today, extend yourself to him. Let's sing this song about Jesus, our Savior. He is our alive, he is our alive and risen Savior. He is our alive and risen Savior who sent his Holy Spirit to help us, to help us. Those who have come, if you need, you need help. You need help. Those who are here at these altars, they've stepped out by faith. They've stepped out by faith, believing. And whatever, whatever the, the trial, the trouble, whatever the issue, whether it's little or big, God knows. God knows. And they're here, humble before his throne of grace. And I want us all to pray. I want us all together to pray. And if there's any others that you need this, you can come because God's compassionate. God sees, God hears. He sees distress. He hears distress. And we're here to humble ourselves before him to ask for his compassion, for his compassion, his tying in, his, his, his desire to help and alleviate whatever the situation is. And he can do it. He can do it. And if we don't believe that, I don't know why we're standing here this morning. So pray with me. Pray with me, everyone here, for these at these altars. And if you have a prayer that you need, uh, again, you can just step out or, or raise your hand if you haven't, you haven't taken that step forward. God, we stand here before you humble. Father, in the name of Jesus, our risen Savior, who accomplished something great for us, that we can come to you, God, with freedom and confidence. And we do that, God. We have, we're coming by the blood of Christ, by the blood of the cross. We are coming to you, God, Father God, and asking for your help, for your compassion. God, that you would see. See all these at these altars right now, God. See them, Lord, and hear them. You know their needs. You know their trouble. You know their, their issue. You know what they desire, be it wisdom, be it a touch in their physical body, be it a, a son or a daughter who's gone wayward and they're asking for your intervention, God. Be it a soul that they're asking for salvation for, uh, someone that's near and dear that, that needs the touch of the Lord Jesus Christ and they're heartbroken to, to come to that cross. God, you know what the desire is of these who are standing before you, but it's it's been a pain. It's been a pain in them, God. It's been something distressing them. And they're asking for your compassion. They're asking for you to hear, and they're asking for you to act, God. And we, uh, we, we ask, God, according to your will, that you would act, Lord, that you would move with a heart of compassion on all of these. Touch them, Lord, and render them, uh, render them uh, touched by your power, God. Render them done with this, freed from this problem, we pray, from whatever it is that's on their hearts, God. And Lord, will not neglect to say thank you to you. Thank you. Thank you. We're grateful. You're awesome. We remember your mighty and majestic works, your everlasting covenant 
in God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. May all of us who leave this sanctuary be wise. Be wise to honor and revere you, our gracious God of compassion. May we go out there with that wisdom today. Lord, it's our prayer. We look for you to do a good work in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.